Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. Welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. As Mike said in a previous episode, you know what we do. Today's episode is a little different because we have a fan request we're going to talk about. This is the film Seconds, the 1966 thriller by John Frankenheimer. Uh, one of our listeners, Tim, suggested we give it a, a watch. We both did. We had never seen it before the podcast. Mike saw it about 10 minutes ago. He finished and texted me and said, we have to start recording. So here we go, Mike. Opening segment is always our, our gut reactions. Go. Oh my God. So first of all, why is we, okay. So we've done on this season, we've come up with organically a list of, I think some of the best horror slash thrillers that have ever been made. And, and if you pull open a list, a similar list, I think we match up pretty well. You know, that's why we did that, you know, thing on not watching the exorcist, et cetera. And, you know, the wicker man. And, you know, obviously these are, these are pulp classics. I didn't see seconds on any list. It did not hit my radar. Um, I love uh, the director's other films. Where did Rock Hudson learn to act? And why have I been watching a different Rock Hudson his entire career? And this is a movie that tricks you several times into thinking that you you're you're waiting for the final bet. You know, like you're at the poker table and you think that the final card is going to turn. Correct. And then it just raises everything until you're absolutely all in. And the structure of this movie is wild. Uh, it doesn't let go. I've never been so uncomfortable watching people sweat on camera. I, I, and some of, the, some of these angles and music try to trick you into thinking that the film doesn't know what it's doing. It, it has some of the form of a bad TV episode or a Twilight Zone episode. And I think that that is really to just put you in a state where you're suggestible. And I, I've never really experienced anything quite like that before. Yeah, we are as hypnotized as, as the hero is after he drinks the tea and is put into that room, absolutely. Because, you know, same reaction, completely loved it. Um, I think this movie just sprung into my life like Athena, like out of Zeus's head. And now I can't believe I went this long without seeing it. And it's funny because when I saw the opening credits, they struck, it struck me as like a, a uh, like a modish kind of Twilight Zone episode. But, but of course, once you've seen the whole film and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, go watch it and then come back. But if you haven't seen it, you know, the whole, the whole opening credit sequence is the warped face because it's gonna be that has warped identity and has warped reality. But I really, I mean, really, really loved it. I mean, it, it, let's talk about how great the performances are, right? John Randolph, it's all these moments, John Randolph. Oh, first of all, let's go back a second. How much better it is that there's two actors? So good. Not just Rock Hudson in makeup and then becomes Rock Hudson. Much the only thing that I regret about that is that once I understood what was going to happen in the movie and John Randolph agrees, I was like, oh, he's not going to be in the movie anymore? Right. But then you get Rock really Hudson. Get an hour? But then you get all these, like John Randolph dictating the letter when he's preoccupied to the secretary. That, that's unbelievably great. Um, the scene where uh, the, the guy is um, looking at the chicken and he keeps saying, are you going to eat that? And you can see he really wants to eat the chicken, right, Ruby? Um, when Rock Hudson goes back to his old house and is looking around, his face when Mrs. Hamilton is talking about their marriage, and you just see his face, it's so well done. And let's also say it might be the best drunk scene ever in movie history. Yes, that it's certainly the most realistic. Yeah, in, a certain, in a certain kind of realism. And what, what I mean is the camera is doing the way you're feeling. Exactly, but Rock Hudson does it perfectly. He makes the vow not to drink anymore and then just starts pounding drinks as fast as he can. I mean, I think it was, I, I think the brilliance of the movie is that, you know, there's a couple things. First of all, it's 
it's not like witness protection where you go into hiding. You go into full living as a, as a way to get your new life, right? Um, and I think that it reminded me of, it reminded me of a lot of movies, certainly of The Wicker Man that we, we maybe we'll talk about later, yeah. but, but, but certainly reminded of, it reminded me of um, John Cheever's stories. This guy's an Achiever's story. And he wants to get out of the Cheever's story and quote unquote live and go live among the Bacche, you know, and the, the wine festival and things like that. But what he learns, and you and I have talked about this uh, off camera about the novel Revolutionary Road, is that he wants to be free, but then he finds out that that freedom is just it's just another prison with actually scarier guards. Yeah, I think part of the thesis of the film is that you're you're tethered to yourself by these little clips, which are the things that have just kind of happened to you by circumstance over the, and they accumulate over 25, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And if you mistake that for a shackle uh, and you unclip them, you, you make a grave mistake and there's no going back. Absolutely. All right, I'll see you in part two. Okay, welcome back in part two. You know what we like to do with our, I guess I'll say favorite moments for this movie, whatever that means. Dan, what's your favorite moment from this movie? Mine has to deal with what you had just said about your clips coming undone, right? And, and the rivets coming out. My moment, and, and you could almost stop this movie at any random point and it's a great moment. But my moment that really, really hit me was before he becomes Wilson. John Randolph is making a list of, of the characters. Hamilton's making a list of all the things that, that constitute his identity. And he says, well, there's my, my, my boat and I'm gonna be the president of the bank and, and I have friends. And so he's pushed to talk more about his wife and he says, we get along, we, we hardly ever quarrel. And he's stumped. He can't talk anymore about what his life is. And that, that is so moving, I thought, in this strange sci-fi setup. It's so moving that he can't think of anything else. It's so moving when he's trying to say that he hasn't been intimate with his wife in a long time. And he has to say, well, we, we haven't been affectionate. And, and to his credit, like, Director lets that pause go on. That pause is so long you could drive a truck through it. So it reminded me of, you know, the first line of Hamlet. Do you remember the first line of Hamlet? Who's there? Who's there, right. That's the whole play. That's this whole movie, right? Who's there? And it reminded me of the song that gets sung in Citizen Kane. Who is this man? Who is this man? What is his name? So who is this person, Hamilton? Who is he? He's a guy. He, I, I have my boat. Um, my daughter lives out west, but she doesn't really talk to us anymore. She writes to us. And it reminds me of when Nora screams at him later. She, she just has a, a throwaway curse when she gets mad at him and asks him a question and says, now who the hell do you think you are? That's my and, moment. And was it your moment? And yeah. that, the whole movie's about that question. So let's go right into it. Why did you pick that moment? Because uh, I was entirely taken in by Nora. My, my, I, essentially, it makes sense because the company has written this script to be believable, right? It, or you can think about this as a metaphor for acting. You're gonna go in, they're gonna do some stuff to you. You're gonna come out looking like Rock Hudson. They're gonna pump you full of alcohol. You're gonna fall in love. You're gonna be on the beach, but inside, you know, that this isn't, it's not real. It feels real, but it's not real. And even all the experiences that kind of feel real while you're in their fantasy uh, are, are synthetic in a, in a certain kind of way, just like the Bacchanal is, is synthetic. Right. It's, it's a party that they have ritually to get people that are unused to wine and unused to sex and intimacy, you know, used to the feel of quote unquote youth or whatever they, again, they're, they're, they're doing it to construct youth and to construct virility. And that's the moment 
when you realize it's a story because you don't have to be told later that Nora's an employee when she says, God damn you, who the hell do you think you are? You know, because that's that's the point at which she's supposed, she's like Ingrid Bergman until then. She says, mom was going to make everything better just like uh, in, in Notorious. And, and, then, and that line becomes sinister because you believe Ingrid Bergman all the way through Notorious, but Nora reveals that she's an actress, you know, after you've only known her 20, 25 minutes. Well, you, always, you always believe Ingrid Bergman, yeah, but certainly I believe Nora. I totally, I fell for every trap in the film, in the film's plot. Um, there's no word for this, but I think this movie, I totally evoke the, uh, the holy crap moment when, when it dawns on you uh, what happens in the day room and what the day room is for. And then you're like, well, I have to get the corpses okay and and, when, and we're just strapping you to the table so you don't fall off and that you get that whole scene too which we'll probably talk about in a couple of minutes the the pauses all the pauses in this movie are great the pause when the first cleaner uh just keeps pressing the shirts yeah. and then he says they in here they moved i wrote it down it's got the piece of paper and then he disappears forever <laughs> all right i'll see you in part three okay so welcome back to part three, where we talk about the ending or the title or our lasting impressions on the film. Um, you know, before we start, Mike, it was funny watching this. And before you said about, you know, what a great performance Rock Hudson puts in here. You know, more than once, it was funny for a nanosecond, he reminded me of Cary Grant, just because of the way his hair was part on the right, and just his profile and stuff. And you forget how, how uh, good looking he was. I mean, you know, I'm watching this in my, my hoodie, sitting here with my thinning hair and thought to myself, I don't know, 30 grand. Hmm. Well, like Rock okay. Hudson. That's exactly what I want to talk about to wrap up the episode because it's really? kind of the conjunction. Yeah, it's kind of the conjunction of our two, of our two moments, which is when he's sitting there as an older man, and he's being essentially conned into this process, and he's being asked to list the things. I want I want to focus on that for a minute because I think that again part of the thesis of the film is you're meant in that moment to feel like you're on the con man side. Meaning what, what, he's, what he's saying is list the things, say them out loud, explain to me why you're attached to the things you're attached to and the people that you're attached to. He can't come up with anything, which is why he joins the program. And I suppose you have to come down one way or the other, which is either that list makes sense in a certain way or it does not. And I, I guess <clears throat> what I would propose is that where the film is going is that there's there's something about you and being yourself which is ineffable it's not necessarily essentially articulable and it's it it doesn't fit well into lists which is why they ask you to list it because that's part of the trick right. if you asked me what i like being about mike right now i would i would come up with the same thing i'd be like yeah, i don't know my my bruins hoodie my laptop but that, but that doesn't necessarily, and that doesn't necessarily mean improvements can't be made. What his, essentially what the story about his wife is not that she doesn't miss him. It's that she regrets that she couldn't break through and say, are you going to talk to me? Or, you know, or she tried and she couldn't get through to him and that he never turned to her in 30 years or whatever and said, hey, I, I want to reconnect with you. I want to, or I want to say something. These are improvements that can be made to, to structures that already exist. But the, but the essence of being human is not necessarily articulable or listable, and that's part of their trick. Are we on the same page? Absolutely, because that's exactly how they do. I mean, that's one of their. I mean, their biggest trick is obviously to put, give him the tea and then put him in the room with the, with, you know, with the woman and, and then have the black. That's trick there. number one. I was I was focusing on trick number two. Yeah, that's trick number that's two. That's one of their less subtle tricks. But certainly, the list is a way to make him 
uh, you know, super sensitive and self-conscious about the fact that he seems to have nothing. Just as during that scene that goes on so long, you start to think about yourself and you start to think, well, now I think that the, the, the flip side of that is the it's a wonderful life mentality, right? Which is that, no, those simple things really are wonderful. And that's like a big theme of, of writers like G.K. Chesterton, right? Is that, is that, no, like everyday life, there is something wonderful about it and you don't need a whole list and, and being the president of the bank is fine and having a boat is, is great. And like, so, but he tries to like make some grand list because that's what he thinks he's going to get. That's what he thinks he's going to get to do as a painter. That's why they make him a painter, right? And not like another, it would be great if they did the whole operation and he was a president of a different bank, <laughs> right? So of course, I think that's fine. So my moment, my thing about the ending is I don't want to talk about the theme so much as, as the style or about what we see. And it's that it reminded me very much, and I don't know about you, but didn't it remind you of the end of The Wicker Man? Absolutely. It because, is the end of The Wicker Man. Because, because you know, you don't get an escape. If Tom Cruise were playing this, he'd, he'd, he'd fight his way out or something like that. You don't get the escape. They put the gag in his mouth, right? The ball gag in his mouth, the improvised ball gag in his mouth. And you get that long, and it, like everything else in the movie, the camera doesn't peel away. You get that long shot of him screaming and screaming and riding down the hall. Then you get the surgeon saying, okay, it's gonna be an auto accident. Then you get to see the drill come out. It's really, that, that scene could have ended many, many times, but he didn't. How, however, um... So this comes back to our conversation about hereditary and why this is this is such a good ending scene is because they're continuing to to evolve. There's essentially gags in the hallway when he's when he's getting his last rites and the guy tells him that you know he he can administer last rites to a Protestant and Catholic yeah. argue, um, which which is of course a joke and he's doing it in Latin and he's doing it you know out of the Book of English Prayer, um, and the the amount of formal fun that's being had with that moment uh, is what makes it tolerable. Otherwise, it would be intolerable. If he were just being wheeled into surgery, um, that wouldn't be fun. That would be un as unbearable as kind of like the opening credits are when you're you're like, okay, I've, I've looked at this for 30 seconds. I'm not sure what I'm looking like. It's like the, the opening credits are like a MoMA installation. And then, you know, if you were just being wheeled into surgery, you wouldn't want to see it. But it's it's structured and you're right, stylized in such a way um, that the reveal is fun. And it's not just a quick in and out reveal either. They make you sit in it. Yes. Well, fun in a, fun in a uh, like an, an appreciative of the director's decisions fun. I mean, <laughs> still, your stomach still drops and you're, and you're still cringing in your seat and you, and you walk out of the room horrified. Well, plot point of order, we realize now that his friend could not have turned him in first, that his friend had to turn somebody in first, get his new life, come back out and in order to prolong his life, he turned somebody in so he wouldn't be selected until that guy messed up, in which case it's, it's his turn to go. Right. And so when he tells him he's always been his, his best friend, that's the reason that he's never turned, you know, that's the reason he's never turned him in, only when it was um, turn, you know, uh, turn somebody else in or die. Yes. It, 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 it's that moment. And he, he, he can't turn anybody in, but they do, as Norris says, turn the key. He tries to turn the key on his new identity. What and a movie. What's the last shot? The last shot is the drill, right? Or like the camera going up to the light? No, what is it? It's a father on a beach somewhere with oh, a, right. a little girl on her shoulder. So that's, that, and that's what I mean by the list. Meaning, yes. you know, the, the list is meant to force you to articulate the fact that now that she's grown, maybe she writes home once every two weeks. But it's also the last thing he, he sees, no matter the who the him is with whatever name and whatever face. 
We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, so here we are. We actually have a bonus segment. We have the person who recommended Seconds to us. We're so thrilled to be on a call with Tim from Virginia. He's going to be part of the show now. Tim, you heard Mike and I talk about Seconds. You're the one that brought it to our attention. So what do you think we hit? What did we miss? Um, did we like it for the right reasons? Did we like it for different reasons you did? What, you, the floor is yours. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. And um, I was uh, pretty excited to hear that you uh, both had not heard of it before. I'm glad that uh, it tickled your uh, your your un your uncomfortable bone, maybe. Um, and I think maybe the reason you don't really sort of naturally put this movie in with horror uh, films is, uh, you know, the, the, I think the '60s is a pretty bad time for movies. But there was one thing that Hollywood is pretty good at which was these movies about people who want to somehow drop out of society or find themselves or, you know, get away from the man's version of, of, you know, the square society and they just can't do it. And they always fail to do it. And like Paul Mazursky made a lot of good movies like that. This is sort of the same uh, dynamic, right? I mean, it's like sort of the ultimate version of that. Right. And um, one of the things that's, I think central to that is that, the sinister company at the center of this movie, they provide an excellent service. I mean, there is nothing to complain about. You got Wesley Addy there to help you. He's a consummate professional to be the butler. They set him up with a woman who's attractive but age appropriate. They have him in a, you know, who would complain? He got a beach house in Malibu. You get to live as an artist without even really having to do any art. He's really got nothing to complain about. But of course, he can't stand it, right? It's horrible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's sort of the great one of the great themes of a lot of movies from back then is like you just can't escape your life. And, you know, they don't sentimentalize it. You think of all the, the bad ways things could have gone. It could have been like escape the pina colada song where he realizes, oh, I wanted my wife fall along or he finds out how terrible this company is and exposes them all or something <laughs> like that. But again, the company's really good. Right. I mean, yeah. they, they yes, he has no reason to complain which makes the movie even more horrifying. Yeah, they earned their $30,000. I, I like what you said. I like what you said about um, folks trying to drop out of a square society. It's like, this, this movie's like very easy rider. And uh, you, know what it, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of um, The Matrix, and I forgot that. Uh, I always had a weird itch uh, as a kid where I liked the second Matrix movie where the guy explains to Neo what The Matrix is and why, why they built it and how it works. Right. And how it was, you know, uh, all the humans initially rejected it because they created a version of paradise. They made it, they made it too right. good. They forgot to inject uh, the, that that flavor of concern in, into people's. Uh, and then uh, I feel like you get it when, um, you know, when Colonel Sanders comes into his comes into his room and, and tells him why he started the company. You know, he says, don't worry yeah. about it. It's fun. You know, it, it, what, what do you have? Um, that really, I always like that scene 
And this is like a, a much better version of that scene. And obviously a much more, uh, not realistic, but th this is a much more fun version, I think of, of the rejection of the fantasy world. But you're right, that, that do, that's not necessarily an endorsement of where he came from either. Yeah, I, right. I mean, they, they don't, there isn't this sort of, there's a million ways this movie could cop out and it never does. Right. And, uh, and you know, one thing I would say about the, about it is you have to give John Frankenheimer a lot of credit. I give Rock Hudson a lot of credit too. You know, he means he was great. He, he's, he not only he always, it seems to me, you know, we all know about Rock Hudson. He always sort of gets dismissed in this kind of like, hey, fellas, celluloid closet kind of way that you would not say about anybody else for some reason that's always like the big thing that you like love to stick rock hudson with <laughs> right. is that he was in the closet all this time it's like you know who cares he was great in this movie as you mentioned probably the best drunk scene i've ever seen in a movie and there's there's a shot where he's he's holding his martini he's like standing in the frame with this you know attractive woman next to him a couple other people at the party he's like He's holding his, his highball glass, which isn't even done. And there's a tray in front of him with a martini on. He's like, bird, he's got his eye right on the martini. <laughs> and it's like, hey, I've been there. I know that feeling. Well, that's great because it's that that is his escape from the paradise. You know, Mike, before it just mentioned The Matrix. And of course, that made me think of, uh, well, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. But as yeah. you also said, Tim, that, you know, the company does not put up a parking lot. And that's one of the great things about it is that if if Tom Cruise played this part or something, like you said before, he would find the way to bring the whole company down yeah. and, you know, love who you are or something like that. But um, you, it's so sinister that even as as Mike was saying before, you get all that dark humor when the guy at the end is like, "Well, I I can do a, I can do a Catholic burial or an Episcopalian one or a Jewish," is that it's it's so sinister that you don't know what to do as a viewer. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the decision the character made too is like, well, he deserves it, right? He doesn't really. There's nothing where really where he merits any kind of better end than he gets, right? <laughs> In this very fake kind of you know uh last rights that they're giving him and all of that stuff it's sort of like well, yeah well you chose like the most like the, the creepiest way to kind of make your life over and so yeah. here's what you're getting yeah what did you make of the theme because mike and i were talking before about like you know like all of the things that make up your life and when they ask him to list all the things that make up his life like i have a boat i have a i could be president i said you know my joke obviously was that um they don't you don't pay thirty thousand dollars to become the president of another bank you know it's like it's this whole reawakening re thing but what did you make of that 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 you know he he couldn't come up with a list of of what made him what he was yeah, well, do you know, and if you ever, if you ever read the book of the Maltese Falcon, there's sure. uh, the, Flit, the Flitcraft case yeah. where uh, Sam Spade gets hired by a wife whose husband disappeared and he tracks the guy down. It turns out the guy has moved like two towns over and is now married to the exact same type of woman yep. working the exact same type of job. And, you know, when, he, when Sam Spade asked him, why did you do all this? He said, well, you know, I just couldn't go on living the same way I was living. <laughs> And that's after, remember, that's where Flitcraft, he almost gets killed. That's why he does it. Yeah. He falls on a construction site and, and Sam, Spade, Sam Spade says, you know, someone had shown, picking up the top and shown him the work. So, so the whole idea is like, well, life is so precious. It hangs by a thread, you know, I'm going to go do what I want to do. Kind of like, you know, John Randolph wants to do yeah. in this movie, but of course he does the exact same thing. Or you, you guys know that story, the Hawthorne story about the. Yeah. Fanshawe, I think it's called. Fanshawe. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. 
Yeah, because in Fanshawe, doesn't he like walk across the street or he goes like one town over or something? He, like he lived he lives across the street for 20 years and is and watches to see, the only way that he can make sense of his life is to see the vacuum of the space that he left behind. But essentially he 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 spends all that time waiting for nothing to happen, which is what he was doing before. And what's great in this movie yeah. is when Rock Hudson goes back and he goes into the room that was his den where the big Marlin was on the wall. Which, and he's sitting there and he's he's kind of upset that like she redid the room. And but like what's she supposed to do? Like he like, you know, he's he's gone. Like he's he think he thinks he's gonna have this great like uh, uh, impression upon everybody else and he's 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 not. Yeah, you know, I would say uh that's probably you'd you'd say that's the climax of the movie right there. When he meets the wife, it's sort of everything else sort of resolves from there because like you need that he has to go back and and see what it was he left behind and realize well, what he left behind isn't really any better or worse than what he's in now and you know the, the speech that the wife gives is like bone chilling yeah by the way there's there's there probably isn't one shot in this movie that doesn't in some way make your flesh creep <laughs> absolutely <laughs> i there's a there's a lot to me uh, that looks um, it's almost Ibsen it's it's re reminding you uh, that you're in a movie and you so you can't get comfortable um, you know I really I really really like that I, I like the way that the that the play that the play that the movie messes with you like a, a certain kind of of, of theater does uh, in order to to remind you that you're that you're an audience member um, there's a lot of weird jarring angles there's a lot, a lot of weird jarring views so to Tim's point it's not just what's being shown or what we're being shown there's a lot of times that we're like the the camera's almost shaking us yeah there's a lot of steady cam yeah. when he's in that when he's in the beginning when they're following him around and you only see the top from the from the nose up of the guy who's following him there's a lot of great re you're right there's a lot of reminders yeah. you're in a movie it's very claustrophobic yeah absolutely i don't know if this is going to make anybody want to see the movie the way we're talking about it it sounds like a torturous experience well, but uh, you know it, it is a movie that will keep you guessing from beginning to end and i've seen it a couple of times and it definitely holds up on uh, further viewings I, I again i just can't i can't believe that there's a movie that i've never heard of or even heard referred to that is that affecting and that weird at the same time yeah, I don't know why uh, it fell through the crowd. I mean, I guess it wasn't a hit at the time, but um, it, it certainly gets respect. I mean, when you see, yeah. when you hear anybody who's seen it talk about it, nobody says, hey, this isn't a good movie. It's there, in the Criterion but, collection. They added it to Criterion. A, you can't have a neutral reaction to it. <laughs> you know, you know I, like, I, I'm not a big fan of the Roman holiday, but that's because I, I have no... I have no feelings about it when it when it's on it just doesn't you know it doesn't there's no way that that you can be neutral about this movie yeah yeah and you know one of the things that really works in that last scene you know part of it is that there's the they strap the camera onto the gurney <laughs> in the last scene and that part of it makes it intense but you know if this had been like a douglas sirk movie with rock with rock hudson and it was all done in a master shot from 15 feet away it would still be really disturbing and it's because Rock Hudson's this big, strong, athletic man who's like it's he's really struggling at the in that scene, yeah. and it's really disturbing. But when you have the handler for the six million dollar man work as the surgeon, you know there's no getting out of that room. Yeah, I guarantee you that's how Richard Anderson got the job on the six million dollar man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks for thanks for hanging around, Tim, and thanks for thanks for uh, suggesting this film. We'll, we'll certainly take more uh, of picks in the future. Glad you liked it, and thank you for having me. Glad you liked it, and thank you for Our having pleasure. me on. See you later, everybody. Bye-bye.